Pilgrims. I'm Ray Defterius, and this is the Hand Tool Book Review, the podcast for people who love woodwork and love reading about woodworking too. Many people across the world are responding to the coronavirus crisis in their own way. While many of the people are reaching out with physical donations or help to the affected, I've also seen online services such as Amazon and Audible go completely free to assist children with learning materials. Another really nice gesture that I've seen is that Bad Axe Toolworks is running a COVID-19 special where you can get 19% of all of their saws. We're going to talk a little bit later about filling up your toolkit, but give them some consideration if you're considering buying a premium saw. However, one of the nicest gestures I've seen was from an author who is offering to make a chapter of his woodworking book available to anyone who's sitting at home and wants to read it. The book in question is one of those books that should probably be on your bookshelf, particularly when you're starting out, and it includes advice on setting up shop and a range of initial projects. I'm going to save the suspense. It's a book that I would have rated 8 out of 10, in other words my top ranking, in the category all-round books. The book costs $18 and it's 160 pages long. I'd recommend the book to anybody who's been procrastinating in terms of not starting the hobby. Someone who's complaining that they don't have enough space, they don't have enough tools, or they don't have enough skills to get on with it and go and build something. The book has chapters showing you how small a space you actually need to work in, and I think you'll enjoy some of the pictures, particularly of the apartment workshops, or the workshops under the staircase. It's also got the tools that you'll need, and I think it's a pretty good, essential list of tools. There's nothing on here that's extravagant or unnecessary, and it'll get you surprisingly far in terms of projects. There's a very good chapter on marking and measuring, then some practical advice on sharpening, before we close off with a reminder of the essential tools that you need on your list. After that, the remainder of the book has about 100 pages dedicated to specific projects. There's a saw bench and bent, shooting board hook, wooden mallet, workbench, and a hand tool shelf. I like this final project because although it's positioned as a shop project, I think that if the quality is good enough, you'll be happy to have this hanging up anywhere in your house. As I said at the start, I thought it was really fantastic that an author would do something like this for people affected by the crisis. So I took a flyer and I reached out to him. Asked him if he'd join me for a show. And so I'm really delighted to announce today that our special guest is the renowned woodworker Vic Tesselin and the author of The Minimalist Woodworker. So welcome, Vic. Perhaps before we go about the book um, and speaking about that specifically, I could maybe just ask you for a little bit of an introduction and some background about why you entered the woodworking world. I noticed with some interest that your professional capacity before this was military and you were in the artillery corps and then you moved to the Rosewood studio and that sounds like quite a change. So maybe you could just tell us a bit about what prompted that change of career. Yeah, absolutely, right. So when I... Uh... I served in the Canadian military for 14 years, as you had said, in the artillery. Uh, and, uh, you know, a big part of uh, the military lifestyle is sports, of course, uh, for building camaraderie. And uh, when uh, when there's not an active uh, war going on, you take it out on each other uh, on the field. So I played rugby for, for my unit, and uh, I ended up getting a pretty severe injury to, my, uh, to one of my shoulders, which has proven to be fine for civilian life. But uh, for military life, it just it wasn't, uh, wasn't going to work for me to continue doing that. So, um, so I got released and, uh, medically, and, and so I had to figure out after being in the military since the age of 18, I had to figure out basically what I wanted to be when I grew up. 
basically I took a look at some, you know, more sort of professional avenues. And, and then, um, I kept coming back to woodworking, which was a hobby of mine, uh, when I was in the military. So, you know, part of my, part of my, uh, leaving of the military included some retraining, uh, money. And so I ended up, uh, attending Rosewood studio. Um, and I took their, uh, at that time it was a nine month program, which was a fully immersive, you know, kind of look at the fine furniture world. So that's, that's where I got my education from. Okay, that's that's fascinating. It's quite interesting. I'm from South Africa, as you know, so rugby is certainly a sport we played over here, but you're a lot braver than me to play at post-school. I went to one club rugby game and saw all these national and state uh, people lined up and decided that was time to hang up my boots. So uh, there you uh, go. Cert- <laughs> certainly braver than me on that front. Did you do woodworking while you were younger? Is there any sort of history in the family um, of woodworking? Not necessarily. I mean, my father was an immigrant from Italy. And um, so he he kind of grew up on a farm. And, and uh, when he came to Canada, he started, he was in the uh, construction industry, as a lot of Italians are, it seems, in Canada. And he his, his trade was actually a painter, but he was one of those guys that, you know, could fix pretty much anything and could make pretty much anything. So I grew up, you know, being a hammer holder and a, and a, and a screwdriver passer, you know, pretty much uh, whenever he needed help, I was there to help him out. I worked with him uh, for a little while. Uh, and of course, uh, that went about as well as you would expect it to. Um, so, but uh, all that being said, I think just the working with my hands has always been second nature because it's something I grew up watching my father do. Yeah, I, th- I think that's something that we can't really underestimate. My, my dad was a kind of hobbyist electrician. His My uncle was actually an electrician and he'd helped him when he was younger. So just seeing someone change a light bulb or rewire something in the house, it always just gives you that confidence to give it a shot. And I think that if we exposed to that when we're young, it certainly gives you that confidence to come back when, you, when you're older. I was absolutely useless at woodwork when I was in school. I, <laughs> I think I would have fa- failed shop if I hadn't had uh, some uh, metal work because I really just didn't have the patience when I was younger. Right. But, you know, I could find myself a couple of decades later going back to it and it didn't have that kind of um, barrier to entry. And, you know, spe- speaking of barriers to entry, I mean, you published your book about five years ago now. And, you know, from my reading of it, you wanted to get across the message that you could work in a small space with a limited number of tools and you know there's some great pictures of of people working in small apartments do, do you think that people consider a lack of space or a lack of premium tools to be a real inhibitor to getting going with their woodworking well ray that's pretty much why i wrote the book i mean i would you know i knew from my my background you know that there's more than one way to woodwork um you know rosewood you know always instilled a good balance of hand and power tools and I just got tired of people telling me that, you know, they'd like to woodwork, but they can't because they don't have the space or they don't have the, they don't have the money for premium tools or, or, or even more frightening that they couldn't run a table saw in their current shop setup. And so I thought that that was really bizarre, um, you know, knowing that I can, I could woodwork anywhere. I mean, my smallest shop to date, was 40 square feet, which was basically enough space for a, for a bench and myself and, and some tools underneath the bench. So. You know, there's all, there's all kinds of options available for people, you know, as far as clubs to be able to, you know, borrow some machines or, or things like that. So for me, it just basically came about because I wanted more people to woodwork. I just, I enjoy it so much. I can't imagine other people not enjoying it. And so I wrote the book to kind of remove 
those barricades uh, because I, I don't think that you need a full shop with a full setup. I mean, in a lot of cases, you can produce some pretty beautiful woodworking with, uh, with a pen knife and, a, and an axe. So, I mean, you don't need a lot. I think you've also you've got one phenomenal picture in the book there, which is just a, a little workbench set up almost in the corner of a of an apartment. And you know, I looked at that and I thought well, one of the things that's really given me the most joy over the last couple of years was just making a a little treasure box for my son. He's eight, and I built him a little treasure box with a hidden compartment in it. And you know, it, it probably measures I, I don't know, um, let's say. 20 inches across, you know, in terms of the, you know, the, the widest, widest uh, dimension, maybe a little bit longer in length. But that's something that you could easily put together on a, on a table or a countertop. You know, if you, if you had a bench hook and, you know, I'd, I'd never, never had a bench hook until I joined uh, Shannon Rogers's hand tool school and learned a bit more about hand tools. But, you know, literally with just that kind of stop and an ability to make some simple cuts, you could sit there and clamp it to the edge of the, you know, table and do some dovetail joints. And the next thing, you've got this really beautiful thing that you could give to a family member or as a gift for a friend, a, a wine box, whatever it may be. So it's, it's, it's quite interesting to just think about how little space you actually need to do some of the projects people do. I mean, if we get into cabinet making, it's a, it's a different story. You know, you're not going to put together a, a wardrobe, you know, in a, in a, a, an, under the stairs very easily. But there's a, there's a range of great projects that you can do that, that really don't need that much space. No, you're absolutely right. And I think that's, you know, one of the things I always encourage people to do is to is to be realistic about the space that you do have. You know, everybody wants a bigger shop. I know people who have, you know, shops that are a thousand or, or 1500 square feet and they still want more space. So it's just one of those things that, you know, if you've got a small space, just accept the fact that that's what it is. And yes, you won't be making king sized beds or, or wardrobes as you've alluded to, but you can certainly make small boxes and, you know, small wall hanging cabinets and various other wooden objects. So, I mean, there really is, you know, space is not, should never be the inhibitor preventing somebody from woodworking the same could extend to tools you know you've got a you've got a great tool list there i think on page 58 59 i made a bit of a note of that Hmm. and you know that that's really not a difficult set of tools to get together i accept that you know at some point in your career you might want higher quality tools in certain instances but as a small starter toolkit there's really quite a lot there that you could get from even from a big box store and just get going with it uh, without having to worry about making a big investment Right. You can spend all kinds of money. I mean, there's, there's no real ceiling to it. I mean, you can you can get um, planes from, you know, incredible makers like Conrad Sauer from Sauer and Steiner, Steiner Planes. Um, you know, he makes absolutely gorgeous tools. And then you can go to the other end of the spectrum, which would be, you know, finding something, um, you know, at a, at a yard sale or an antique sale or even making your own tools is a fantastic way to kind of get up get into the ground floor of this. You know, I have tools that I made when I was a student at Rosewood that I still use every day. So, you know, there's a lot of options out there. And, you know, I've got uh, a little jar that I put money into to save up for one of Conrad's planes. So I think um, I think I'm about uh, uh, 3% there. I've been saving for 10 years. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but the reality is, is that, you know, I don't, I don't want to buy Conrad's planes because I need a hand plane. You know, I want to buy one of Conrad's planes because he's a friend of mine and he's an incredible maker and I want a piece of him in my shop. Um, so it's, you know, it's kind of a different different sort of uh, uh, situation. But as far as practical woodworking and getting projects built in the shop, yeah, you don't have to spend a whole lot of money. 
when I looked in the beginning, I sort of thought, wow, that's, you know, quite a lot of money. And then you get into it and, and then it, it gets a life of its own, I guess, in terms of just being something that you're passionate about. I, I have to be honest, there's at least one piece of equipment in that workshop that I really didn't need, but I wanted to get. However, when, when I was starting out, I was buying $5, $10, $20 um, records. Um, there, there, were, there were a lot more of those than Stanley's that were available to me. I, I bought those. I'd go through the process of refurbing them. And, you know, it, there was certainly no barrier in terms of not having access to that. And I think planes are probably the worst example because, you know, it, it's either antique or it's a premium maker today. There's not a lot that you can wander into a big box store and get. If I take a saw as an example, it might not be resharpenable and, you know, it might have a little bit of an um, uncomfortable handle, but you can certainly go and buy a, a decent blade and get sawing by going into a box store and buying a, you know, $20 saw and getting going. And let's be frank, there's a lot of love for, for planes, but chisels and saws are, are really the, those basic tools that get you going and do a, a, lot, of the, a lot of the work. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I tell people all the time, I mean, you know, one of those sort of Stanley plastic handled saws, um, you know, you can get a lot of use out of that. And if you don't own a table saw, um, or, or don't have some way to break down big pieces of wood into small pieces of wood, you know, for the price of one of those saws, I mean, you really can't go wrong. You know, and then it becomes an issue of power versus hand as well. I mean, if you live, uh, you know, perhaps you live in a flat or a condominium where you can't make a whole lot of noise uh, or you can't afford to have dust thrown all over the place, you know, an inexpensive handsaw like that can kind of take you a long way. Um, sure, there are lots of other, you know, options out there buying a used saw or buying a or a premium saw like from a company from someone like Bad Axe Toolworks or something like that. But, you know, uh, it just may not be in your price point. It may not be, you know, as we have a saying here, it's not in your snack bracket. So, uh, and, and the same is true for chisels as well. I mean, you know, sometimes finding an old vintage set of chisels from Sweden or Germany or, or, or Sheffield, England, I mean, yeah, they need a little bit of work and they need a little bit of attention and but you'll get them there and, and you'll find that they're probably just as good as, as anything that you would buy today. Yeah, and I think if we, you know, if we take that and we say, okay, so shop space isn't a limit for you and tools aren't a limit. You know, I was also interested that your book started with a bunch of shop projects and I thought it was a good format because sometimes when you're starting, you're probably worrying overly about putting together this perfect project. And I think it's a very successful way of getting people to do something. You know, you mentioned that to understand you must do. And I, I think by consciously choosing those projects, you've given people a low risk way of finding out um, whether they enjoy this and getting people doing things because uh, there's a lot of analysis paralysis going on thanks to the the internet. And we'll probably chat about that a bit later. But I think the projects you've got, you can just get going with them, you can do them. And by the time you finished the first couple of projects in that book, you should have built skills that are going to make that last project of the shelf uh, all that much better. Right. And that was the whole goal was uh, a lot of people do end up getting paralyzed, you know, worrying about their skill and their ability. And a lot of times a first project is meant for somebody or for somewhere nice in the house. My first woodworking project ever was a um, a night uh, or sorry, a bedside table for my daughter, you know, and there was a lot of stress involved with that project because it, it had to be perfect in my eyes. And, and, um, you know, as you would work for a few years, you start to realize that perfect's not attainable. So, you know, there's no, there's no reason to chase it, but I wanted people to be able to screw up the joints. I wanted, 
Um, you know, if the mortise and tenon didn't turn out perfect, as long as it was solid, who cares? You know, uh, I wanted people to be able to put some wood filler in some place and paint it if it didn't turn out very well. And as a shop project, um, you know, that's not a big deal. You know, it's, uh, it's a lot of stress to have to put something together for the house. And so even in the next book that I'm working on, all of the projects are designed that if it turns out really well, there's lots of application for those particular projects in, um, in the home. Uh, if they don't turn out so well, they can also get used in the shop. So again, removing the stress so that people don't feel that, you know, they can just make mistakes and they can learn as opposed to having to worry about everything being perfect. I think that's great. And I mean, the final project you've got there, which is the the shelf, it's really, it's simple, it's practical, it's got application in the shop. But I, I suspect that there would be people who would build that and then think, wow, this has got an application in my house and I can do something with it. And, you know, really great sort of confidence building final project and, you know, a launch pad into the project. So the way I saw it is that by the end of the book, you've equipped the newcomer with that confidence to have gotten over the initial hump and you know they can get on and they can start making the next project once they've uh, once they've worked their way through those projects yeah that was the plan was just to get people set up with the tools that they need the jigs i mean you need to be able to break down lumber you need to be able to shoot straight edges and, sh- and straight ends you need to be able to um you know hit chisels and i mean you need a place to work so i mean you know the kitchen table or a portable workbench can work for a little while but you know you're going to get to a point where having a dedicated work surface is going to be handy so i just i wanted people to get all of that stuff so that they could get to the to the next phase which was building something you know that that maybe isn't designed as being shop furniture but something more for their home and uh, and with it i mean there's a really clean layout you know plenty of pictures in the book and i i had a look at the credits because i was you know quite intrigued that's it's very much got a consistent feel all the way through and i see you were credited with the photography and your instagram feed also has some nice artistic photos i, I wondered you know is photography another one of your hobbies or did it just kind of go hand in hand with woodworking and uh, taking pictures to put your best foot forward there well, that's uh, thank you. Um, of course, you're always most critical of your own stuff, and so I, I know that you know the next book's going to have even better photos because I've learned a lot from uh, from that. But the the reality was is that I you know I kind of did photography sort of as a hobby when I was younger, and you know we were into film cameras and all that other stuff. But what it really boiled down to is that if I built a piece of furniture for somebody, I would want to have it professionally photographed for a portfolio back when you used to turn up at somebody's house with a binder full of your full of photos. And so, you know, I would end up giving, you know, in some cases, close to half of my profit away by hiring a photographer. Now, that's not to say that photographers aren't worth their money. They absolutely are. But when you're making such a low margin, it was difficult to kind of give that up. So I I taught myself and studied with some people and and learned how to take pictures and how to take pictures that were going to give people the the information they needed to see, whether that was for another commission or for an article or, or in this case, the book. So it's now something that's just kind of second nature to me. I feel like I take pictures of everything and because you never know, it's better to have it than to not, I suppose. <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm not very good at photography, but I can tell you I had probably absolutely no interest in it whatsoever and then when I wanted to post on a blog you know something that I'd done and I take a photo and I looked at it and I was that's that's not how good it is it's it's much better in real life than the picture <laughs> so so it kind of got me motivated to at least do a little bit of playing with you know some filters and checking what was available there because uh, there, there's nothing as horrible as seeing something that 
looks worse in a photo than it does in real life. If it looks better in a photo, I kind of discount that a little bit on the internet. I assume that some of the really good work out there, the guys have done a great job photography, you know, photography wise as well as uh, woodworking wise. But uh, I certainly got more interested in photography when I was trying to share pictures of projects. Well, absolutely, because I mean, you're right. I mean, if it's if it's if it's a not so great picture of something that you're very proud of, you're never going to be happy with that photo. So it's good to good to kind of develop those skills. Just talking about um, photography and Instagram and, and, you know, I think one of the things that feels like it's changed a lot to me over the last bit is the the prevalence of online media related to woodworking. So there's there's lots of training, there's lots of inspiration. Um, you go into Instagram, I mean, if, if you do a search on woodworking, there's a ton of things to look at. There's these phenomenal joints that you can see, uh, you know, whether it's Japanese or Western or anything in between. But it also feels to me that it, it kind of paralyzes people sometimes because when we were looking at a monthly magazine and you'd look at a monthly magazine and you do a little bit of work, you kind of had these large spaces in between where, where you weren't constantly bombarded by this exceptional work. And I, you know, I really don't want to take away from anyone's work. But I was just wondering, do you, do you think that social media has been positive because you know, we obviously we have the YouTubes and the instructional side and the community side of it. But I also feel that there's a bit of a dark side of it, which is that it, it's hard not to compare yourself to the best that you can find out of there. And, you know, when there's 7 billion people having a go on the planet, there's invariably going to be someone who's better than you. Do you, do you have a view on that? Yeah, I think that the the internet is like it, like in any instance is a double-edged sword. I think, you know, in some cases it's helpful. I'm really thankful that it wasn't all that prevalent when uh, I learned woodworking because I, I can see how it would be difficult for somebody starting out because, you know, if you ask 10 woodworkers how to do something, you're going to get 15 answers. And so that can be troublesome. And again, it, it kind of leads to the whole paralysis thing. But I, I think that, you know, especially the woodworking world, I feel like it's a it's a nice environment, especially on Instagram. Uh, people are very supportive. There's, you know, not a lot of, you know, sort of cattiness or or people, um, you know, bullying or anything like that. So I think it's a good thing. As far as comparing yourself, well, I guess that's, for me, that's more of a personal thing. I, I try not to compare myself to others. I know that there are people that are, are better woodworkers than I am. And I know that there are people that are more successful, but success is a, you know, how do you gauge that? You know, is it is it money? Is it happiness? Is it um, Instagram likes? You know, I don't know. So I think, you know, that's a personal thing. I think in the old days, you're right. I mean, you had, well, the old days, what was that, 10 years ago? But I mean, you know, you I would get my issue of Fine Woodworking Magazine and I would t immediately turn it to the back page and I would look at some, you know, kind of absolutely awe-inspiring piece that was done by somebody. You know, and for me, that was something to shoot for. You know, that was, and it's the only magazine you know, really that I uh, subscribe to, uh, well, North American magazine anyway, I subscribe to a, a few other ones around the world, but I find that um, it's the only one that, you know, continues to give me something to, to strive for. So, you know, I don't know, I guess, it, I think the only difference is, is the, is the, is the volume of it. There's a lot more. And so it makes it a little bit more difficult to kind of separate the wheat from the chaff, I guess. But I think, yeah, I, I wouldn't want to be learning woodworking right now. I think it would be a very difficult thing because you'd have to find somebody that you kind of resonate with. And and maybe that's the other thing, too, is that, 
you know, maybe that again, double edged sword, you know, maybe being able to have a exposure to a whole bunch of people, you know, like, do you like a guy like Shannon Rogers or do you like a guy like Spagnolo or do you like a guy like, I'm trying to think of the British fellow there that, um, has a lot of uh, Paul Sellers, Paul maybe. Sellers. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, you know, there's so many different personalities out there that, you know, you can learn from. And so maybe it's a good thing that you can kind of shop around and pick and choose as long as it doesn't get too much, you know, as long as it doesn't become troublesome that way yeah i think i think for myself it was you know a matter of trying to get over that inner perfectionist and you know for me one of the books that was probably the most helpful was gary rogowski's uh you know book handmade Mm. where i really just took this lesson of you know being patient with yourself and and thinking that as much as you're working on a project you're working on yourself as a person and that that's an important outcome and that made it a lot easier for me to to not think of things as failures or successes at the bench, but to just think of them as learnings. And, uh, you know, that, that certainly helped help me to, um, you know, put what's out there in context. Although I also think, you know, guys like uh, Joshua Klein and those great guys at uh, Mortis and Tenon magazine, mm-hmm. they're, also doing, they're also doing a lot, you know, in terms of showing, you know, some of the, the period furniture and just how roughly parts of that were put together. And, you know, it's a challenge to scrub plane the back of a, sortal and then leave it you know in a in a condition that would really be embarrassing even in ikea they'd look at it and say you know what what went on here but it's going to face the wall and i did what i needed to do which was to to thickness it and that's that and i could move on so there's certainly those uh elements out there but uh i've decided to aspire to be a a village carpenter a bit of a you know a a, a joiner if you will rather than a cabinet maker for sure made my peace with that (laughs) i'm gonna gonna try and make some functional furniture that uh, my family enjoys and set that as the benchmark and we'll go from there yeah well you know we've been exposed so much to the ikeas of the world where everything you know comes out perfectly flat and perfectly smooth and perfectly finished and everything you know is is lovely but i mean the that's not how furniture was made a hundred years ago you know only the highest society pieces would have been um you know, made to that level. And even some of those high end pieces, you know, when you looked on the inside surfaces of a high boy, um, they were all rough and, and uh, they weren't, you know, perfectly executed. And, you know, in my mind, there's nothing wrong with that. We have to give up the, and part of that is that search of perfection. You have to give up that idea that, you know, when you buy a piece of furniture that was made in a factory, well, it's not a single human being has touched that piece of furniture. Everything has been, you know, in the case of Ikea, you know, the trees go in one end and the furniture comes out the other. And, um, you know, there's a couple of guys in a control panel, panel like Homer Simpson, and they're just kind of watching dials and making sure everything's running smoothly. So, I mean, it's it. There's there's no human factor, and you can tell that when you look at a piece of production made furniture nowadays that there is no human factor. And so, I like chisel marks, I like saw marks, I like uh, plain marks, I like all of that stuff because that reminds a person that uh, someone's hand was there. And, and I think there's an inherent value in that. You know, um, my son broke a, a coffee mug of his, um, which has got his picture on the front i made one for each of the kids and just you know just ran off a picture on the front uh, and he and he broke his this weekend when he dropped it mm. and my first thought was pick it up throw it in the dustbin you know it's broken mm. and he was so distressed about this and you know i went and i got some glue and i got some epoxy and we stuck it back together and yes it's got cracks through it um and i had to do a bit of sanding on the you know on the lip in the one place but we, we have a cup that is nowhere near the perfection that came out of the factory and yet 
it's got this inherent value because it was something that the two of us stuck back together. And I, I think that's true of furniture. You know, the, the same article that perhaps you've made to a level of perfection and exactly the same article coming out of a shop have different value just because of the process and uh, the people, you know, um, behind making it. Absolutely. One of the one of the things I was very intrigued about was the title of your book. You know, the minimalists I'm most familiar with are uh, Joshua Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus. And, you know, I read their book um, about the minimalists. It was one I enjoyed. Was anyone in particular that inspired your philosophies or influenced you as a person, you know, not only as a woodworker, but just in terms of your way of looking at the world? Well, it just, I think, again, it, it came down to people telling me that, you know, they couldn't do something because of a certain, you know, you need a certain number of tools or a certain amount of something. And I think that that's what I wanted to convey to people was that you don't need every, every tool that gets made. You don't need, you know, to have, you know, hundreds and thousands of dollars worth of tools. Um, you know, and so in, in that case, the minimalist term, you know, isn't, you know, kind of a nod to true minimalism, but more of a sort of an idea that you don't need you know, every single thing to make a project. You you really just need the desire to work with your hands. And, you know, with a minimal tool set, you can get away with an awful lot. One of the, one of the things you, you do is, you know, acting as an advisor and, you know, that you're the face of some of the Veritas videos. And that seems to me like possibly one of the coolest jobs on earth. Um, <laughs> can, can, can you tell us a bit about that and how it came about and what it's like working with them? Yeah. So uh, before I went to work with them, I was the editor of Canadian Woodworking Magazine. And so, you know, I had an opportunity to do a lot of cool stuff. But yeah, working with working with Lee Valley has been a really cool thing. You know, working with the uh, Veritas people the in the research and development department, um, you know, there's they have incredible designers there. They do really good work and they make a great product. So to be part of that was, was really cool. Um, even after being there for a year or two, I still had to pinch myself as I was sitting around the table with all the Veritas designers and, you know, couldn't believe that I was actually there. You know, but it's... Um, yeah, it's it's a cool job, and I've and I've gotten to travel a lot uh, with that job and teach people about hand tools. And yeah, I do a lot of videos for them, and I continue to. I work contract for Lee Valley now, and so you know I'm a little bit less involved, and I'm not um, I'm not in the shop as I used to be. I'm I work remotely, but um, you know I still create videos for them, and I still um, offer some thoughts and do some tool testing and and things like that and a lot of teaching for the stores the lee valley stores here in canada um although right now <laughs> we're not doing too much of that it was a it's a cool experience and it's it's neat to kind of see the process of how a tool goes from you know on paper as a concept um all the way to the end um as a tool that somebody can buy so kind of really opened my eyes to how all of that process works yeah, and it, and it also looks to me like they, you know, they really try and push the envelope there in terms of taking some things forward. So, you know, it's it's great to see that you're not just looking back and making historical replicas. Um, that they're really putting a, a lot there, and you know, there's a couple of their tools that really look, you know, almost space age compared to you know contemporary tools, and uh, re really interesting to to see that. Do you have a favorite tool? If if I to you know, give you, you know, one tool to take to a desert island and something that you wouldn't be parted with? What what do you enjoy uh, the most in the shop? Yeah, I think for me, um, from a practical standpoint, um, you know, the, my, I'd want to take my low angle jack plane. Um, you know, those are, that's one of those tools that just is in constant use in my shop. 
whether it's, you know, removing some milling marks or, you know, things like that, or, or a lot of times it gets used as a smoother because it's already in my hand. And so um, for me, practically, that would be the one, the one that I seem to have most fun with is just a, is the simple plow plane. Um, it just always shocks me at how quick I can plow four grooves you know, for a drawer or for a box, um, you know, and a lot of times I couldn't find the router bit before I, you know, was able to get it done with the plow plane, yeah. um, you know, so never mind doing the machine setups and all that sort of thing. So those two tools, I think for me are, are my favorites. Now, I think those plow planes are phenomenal. Um, I've actually got a, a delivery that's waiting for me currently at the, the depot. I'm not going to grab things that have been all over the world at the moment, as you can appreciate, but <laughs> I found a Found an old uh, wooden plow plane, um, obviously designed for, you know, for the bottom of drawers uh, where it's got a fixed width, you know, kind of quarter inch uh, offset by quarter inch, et cetera, just uh, old wooden molding, you know, planes. Yeah, and and I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to giving that a go and playing with them. They just, there's, yeah, there's such a lot of fun sticking a groove in the bottom of a, of a drawer like that. Absolutely. Are you working on anything interesting in the shop at the moment? Uh, what, what's keeping you busy there? Well, the the biggest thing I'm working on right now is the second book. Um, so okay. that's um, <clears throat> that's been keeping me busy for a little while. I've done a couple of fun things. Uh, my daughter, I got her a couple of woodworking classes for Christmas this year. And so we did a, a turning class and a carving class, which is something that I don't do a whole lot of. Um, so that was a lot of fun. Made some uh, uh, respectable uh, projects. Nothing that I put up onto Instagram or anything yet, but uh, but that was a lot of fun. And of course, for me, you know, anything where I'm learning is uh, is a bonus. So I mean, it may have it may be wood turning, but there are applications, you know, to those wood turnings that you know I can apply to uh, to flat woodworking. But yeah, right now the the focus is basically um, the, all the projects for the book. It's really amazing just doing turning with your kids. I've got an eight-year-old and a ten-year-old, and they they made their first pens this weekend. You know, one of the things we did to kind of keep them keep them occupied um, in the current times. And I was just blown away at how quickly they picked that up. And you know, I, I was a little bit nervous because I mean, obviously, there's stuff spinning there, but really, very good about uh, listening to instructions and you know, not just doing their own thing and we had a we had a massive amount of fun with that the the second book that you mentioned uh, i take it that's more project based is that is that correct or is there anything else you would would share about that book with with the listeners yeah so basically what what i've done is i've uh, picked a set of projects um that have a certain duality to them so like i said earlier if it turns out well you can use it for something in the in the house or if it turns out poorly you can paint it and put it in the shop so basically what i wanted to do is i wanted to build on uh, the initial set of skills that were learned in the first book and then move on to stuff that was a little bit more perhaps a little bit more complicated um you know so we're introducing a, a few different tenon joints, uh, introducing dovetails, and then also we're going to do a little bit of veneering as well. So it's all, and and not not traditional veneering in the sense of like hide glue and that sort of thing, but, you know, using an air, um, you know, a hand-operated air press, um, which I don't know if you've ever heard of a thin air press. Uh, no. Nope. So in, in there's a company here in Canada called um, Roar Rocket, 
and they basically make a uh, vac a small vacuum bag that was originally designed for making skateboards. But what they've done is um, they basically use a small plastic wine pump that you've probably seen for sucking the air out of wine bottles. Um, yeah. And so basically what they've done is they've given you a bag with that appropriate valve in it. Now you can do small scale veneering. So I'm going to introduce the use of that um, because, you know, sometimes when you make a small cabinet or, you know, a, a drawer front, it's nice to take a nice piece of figured veneer and and kind of veneer your, your components. So basically just projects that are going to get people you know, carry on their education, you know, learn more skills, learn how to do more things. And then, you know, I think by the end of this one, you'll have seen pretty much, you know, 80% of the joints that, you know, most furniture makers will ever use. And there's enough skill there to be able to, you know, transpose that over to any sort of project that you might want to do for the house. No, that sounds really great. And uh, I know you also mentioned to me that you're thinking about starting your, your own podcast. So I'm also looking forward to that um, because uh, as soon as that's up and running, please uh, let me know and I'll tell all our listeners and hopefully we'll get some people listening to you. That'd be great. Uh, because I, on behalf of the listeners and, and I guess everyone out there, I think this gesture of yours to you know beat the boredom, is it was really big hearted of you and you know glad that we could showcase it on the show. I'd suggest to listeners that if they just getting into things that maybe the second chapter, your you know, your tools in the small workshop is a good choice mm. or chapter four, the practical sharpening, because I like the fact that that's got the one page essential tool, tool list at the end. But, you know, even for um, people who are a little bit more advanced, you know, you could, you could go there and you could grab the, the mallet or the hand tool shelf. And I think those are both got application, you know, either in the shop or certainly the the shelf, I think, could be applied in the house as well. So there's a there's really a nice range of stuff that, you know, a nice range of chapters that someone could take. And I think in terms of keeping people out of uh, the streets and keeping them at home, um, it was really a, you know, great gesture of you in terms of um, making that offer to people. So, you know, thanks on behalf of everyone. And, you know, I guess there's a lot of online retailers at the moment that have got some free shipping. So, so if there are a couple of tools missing, you can always get those delivered to your house and just stay safe and stay away from, you know, the crowds as it were. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, that was that was my goal. If somebody was kind of on the fence about, you know, maybe picking up woodworking, then, you know, you've got all this time to, you know, to sit at home in some cases now, um, you know, it's a good time to kind of get things kicked off. Fantastic, Vic. So thank you very much on behalf of the listeners. For everyone out there, if you head off to victeslin.com, you can take him up on his offer to beat COVID-19 boredom by heading on over there and getting a chapter. And I think it's a great way to spend your time. As usual, if you've got any comments or suggestions or want to reach out and say hi, you can get hold of me at handtoolbookreview at gmail.com. And, you know, in these dark times, I'd suggest the best way to support the show is really just to recommend it to a friend or send it to someone who's in a dark place at this time. So stay safe out there. And Vic, thanks very much for joining My us. My pleasure, today. Ray. Thank you so much. <laughs>